to you all. Please do have Psalm 20 open in front of you. We're, we're going to plod through that psalm and really try to get what it is speaking to us about this morning. Uh, before we do so, uh, I'm going to pray for us and commit our time to the Lord. Father, we do thank you that we can gather together each Sunday morning and evening. We can come around your word and hear you speaking to us. For you are a living God, and yours is a living word. These words written so long ago, 3,000 years perhaps, still relevant and fresh to us today. Because you are the living God. So give us receptive hearts this morning to take on board what it is that you are saying to each one of us. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, today is Remembrance Sunday. It is a day when we particularly remember the sacrifice of 1.7 million Commonwealth soldiers who gave their lives in the two world wars. Uh, and we live in a world that is constantly in conflict, don't we? Wars are a constant feature of history. And why is that? Well, John hinted to it. The Bible tells us. Because the heart of mankind is stained by sin. It's affected by sin. There will always be selfishness and greed and envy and a desire for revenge in our hearts. Grudges, bitterness. And that will also be a feature in the hearts of those who rule. They're not immune to it either, are they? Kings and rulers. And those actually, when you think about them, those are the motivations for war, aren't they? You know, the three, three things, really, basically. I want more. I want what you have. Uh, and you did that to me, so I'm going to do this to you. Or, or we could use those things collectively. Those are the motivations for war. And let's face it, if you or I were put solely in charge of any country, uh, it wouldn't be long before we were involved in conflict either, because it's in our hearts too. And so we are very thankful for those who've given their lives in our defence, in defence of our liberty, who have died so that the forces of evil and tyranny in the world wouldn't overcome us. They gave their lives to stem the flow. And we owe them a debt. And that's why we have a Sunday like this, why we have a Remembrance Day. But at the same time, we must remember the truth that lies at the heart of that psalm we just read together. So have it open in front of you. If you want to see this, deliverance from enemies, rescue from evil, military victory, all of those actually, the psalmist tells us, come from God. They all come from him. So yes, it was men and women who fought and who strategized and who provided resources and put the work in behind the scenes. But it was, and it always is, God who gives the victory. And this is something that we used to really recognise better, I think, in, in the past, especially in our country. So since the days of actually King Ethelred in the 10th century, the government of this land has often directed its citizens to look to God for help, to call out, to cry out to God for deliverance from our enemies. And you'll probably be familiar with the, what we call the miracle of Dunkirk in World War II. It's a great example of this, isn't it? when a national day of prayer was called because of an impossible situation across the channel, 
where it seemed all was lost for our Allied troops. They were hedged in. They were trapped, surrounded by the enemy, exposed on the beaches, and they were waiting for their doom to literally fall from the sky on them. Winston Churchill, who incidentally had only been in office for four days at this point, called the nation to prayer. And maybe you've seen the photos, queues formed outside the churches as people came to cry out to God for deliverance. And this was followed then by a miraculous sequence of events that resulted in the safe evacuation of Allied troops. Churchill was actually so taken aback that he called a six further days of prayer in the three years that followed. A real recognition. See, in those days, it seemed our nation had some kind of grasp on the truth of this psalm. Look at verse 7 with me. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Well, let's take a closer look at this psalm then this morning. It's what's known as a, a royal psalm. And so it's one that was thought to have been sung in preparation for the day of battle. So you can imagine the eve of battle. And in it, you've actually got a third person, the psalmist, who is speaking, interceding for the king, reminding him on the eve of war that he's got to be trusting God, that, that what's going on between him and God is really the important issue on the eve of war. And uh, so David, King David, who is credited in the title with having written this song, look, he was a king who knew about the right way and the wrong way to lead a nation into battle. He'd witnessed, actually, if you know the stories of the Old Testament, he'd witnessed the train wreck of his predecessor, King Saul, who went about things all the wrong way, it seems. And David had learned as a very young man that in any fight, it doesn't matter how small or how weak you are, or how big the giant is that you're facing, for example, if the Lord God of Israel is on your side, victory is assured, if he's on your side, if he's fighting for you. So how must a king be prepared for battle? Have a look with me at the first four verses here. Verse 1, for the director of music, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you when you're in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. I want to show you three things here about how a king prepares for battle. First, in verses 1 and 2 there, the king, he who leads the nation, must be one whose first recourse is to turn to God in times of distress. When all seems lost, when the foes seem to be overwhelming, when the odds are stacked against you, when fear strikes the heart, the king, the good king, will call on God. He will look for an answer, not from the left or from the right, you know, not from earthly allies, other nations around him, but he will look above. He will look for help from the God who hears the cry of his people and specifically of his king. 
the source of his health of his help then in distress is going to be to look to the sanctuary that's what the psalmist says the place where god has put his presence he's going to look to god that is where support will be found and then in verse 3 have a look secondly he must be obedient and fulfill all of his obligations. Have a look at verse, verse 3 there. May he remember, this is, may God remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. Now, what's the psalmist doing here? The psalmist asks that God might remember all the king's sacrifices and offerings. Those are the things that are required of by the king. It's what the king needs to do. They are his duty before God. An obedient king would never neglect to give God his rightful due, to bring the right offerings and sacrifices. And that is particularly true in the context of this psalm, which is an eve of battle psalm, before going into battle. I mean, maybe you know the story. This is actually the source of the failure of King Saul again, you know, the pre his predecessor. He knew that he should offer a sacrifice. He knew, he knew this was the right thing to do, to seek the Lord's favor before going into battle. But Samuel, the prophet, had told him to wait for his arrival because it was Samuel's job to actually offer the sacrifice. But Saul then looks around him and sees that his people are actually literally quaking with fear. And Samuel hasn't showed up yet. So Saul makes the offering himself. He does the right thing, but he does it in the wrong way. He's disobedient. He's a disobedient king. And that became characteristic, actually, of Saul and the reason for his downfall. So much so that Samuel later on takes Saul aside to rebuke him. And he says this, very important words, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. The victorious king, the good king, he is obedient. And thirdly, verse 4, in, back in Psalm 20, his desires are in tune with God's desires. He wants what God wants. Verse 4, may he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. Now, obviously, you don't want that to be true if all, the all of the king's desires are focused on self-interest, do you? If the king is driven by greed and by envy and by a desire for revenge, those things that we thought about at the beginning, then may God not give him these things. So it's sort of taken as read then that the victorious, the good king, wants what God wants. He wants what God wants. They're on the same page. This king wants to protect, to defend, to bless his people. And he wants the name of God to be praised and glorified. That's the victorious king. You see, this is how the psalm starts out. In the day of distress there, He's the king who seeks the help of heaven. He's the one who offers a sacrifice of obedience. And he's the one who desires those things that God desires. His heart beats in time with God's heart. That's a great king, isn't it? Well, now in the second half then, the psalmist declares his absolute confidence. 
If the king's doing this, if this is our king, then look, verse 5, we will shout for joy when you are victorious and we will lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven with saving power of his right hand. So the obedient faith of the king cannot, according to the psalmist, fail but lead to victory. Because this, after all, as he says, is the Lord's anointed one. Kings were anointed at their coronation. It meant that the monarch had been chosen by God. They're God's man. And so his people are safe. Because God's reply will come with the power of his right hand. The hand of omnipotent power and deliverance. So if you had to pick a key verse in the psalm, you certainly couldn't do worse than what follows in verses 7 and 8. The psalmist concludes here, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. O Lord, save the king, answer us when we call. Now this is the long and short of it, summed up. There are two parties. There are some. There are some out there, says the psalmist, and then there's us. There's, there's the we in the psalm. There's some and there's us. They, the some, they trust in chariots and horses. You know, they trust in the most awesome military hardware of the first millennium BC, the horse and chariot, the iron chariot. An iron chariot is just going to mow down the army of foot soldiers before it, isn't it? It's just going to plough through them. Some will rest their faith in that, says the psalmist. The pinnacle of human might and ingenuity. But we, that's the sum, now the we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That is the name Yahweh. And notice it's all in capitals in your Bible. The covenant name, that is the, the, the special name of the creator. The one who will be what he will be. The God who's decreed history. Who does all that he pleases. That's the God that they're confident in. And so the they, oh, they're going to fall to their knees in defeat, says the psalmist as he finishes up. Whereas we will rise up and stand in victory on solid ground. Now, it's been suggested that this psalm fits beautifully with the story of King Jehoshaphat. Do you know the story of King Jehoshaphat? It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I'll give you the gist of it. So here's the king. He's in a tiny little nation of, of Judah. They're very weak at this point. And three nations have come against King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And a report comes, comes to him. So you've got this coalition of three nations. And a report comes to the king. King, a vast army is coming against you from Edom. And, says the messenger, they're very close at hand. They're, they're right near the borders. So three powerful nations against little Judah. What does Jehoshaphat do? Well, verse 3 of uh, 2 Chronicles 20 says this. Alarmed, as rightly he would be, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah 
The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. The king then, what does this king do? Instinctively, he turns to God. That's where he turns for help. Turns to God and he leads his people to seek the help of Yahweh God. And he prays, saying, look, this is what he says in verse 12. He prays to God, leading the people in this prayer. We have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And the narrator adds this comment. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. And at this, we read that the spirit of the Lord comes on a Levite, a man called Jehaziel. And he says this, the message from God. Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. That's quite something, isn't it? It's an exciting story. And the very next day, it's very bizarre, this story, a spectacle occurs. Try and picture what goes on here. Jehoshaphat now leads out his army, and he leads them out with singing. So they're coming out of Jerusalem, singing. He actually appoints singers to sing songs about the splendor of God's holiness and his faithful love for his people. So they're going to sing songs as they leave the city. And you can imagine walking through the countryside with a choir at the front, marching out from Jerusalem. They're going out to face overwhelming odds. And at the front is a choir singing the Hallelujah Chorus. Can you imagine that? I'm not going to do it. I'm tempted, but I'm not going to. And as they do, God turns their enemies against themselves in a mass slaughter. Obviously, the army don't see this, but over the next valley, here's this vast army all turning on each other and slaying each other. So that when Jehoshaphat's army arrives, it's more like a trip to Meadowhall than it is going to war. All they have to do is to clean up the battlefield. And it takes them three days to pick up all of the possessions and supplies and all of these wonderful goods that they plunder from the battlefield and to take them home. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Now, I wonder whether that collection of songs that they're singing as they're walking through the valleys to the battlefield included our psalm, Psalm 20. I mean, it would certainly fit the occasion, wouldn't it? But why does this psalm make it here into this book, the book of Psalms? That's an an important question to think about. Now, if that question confuses you, you're thinking, what are you talking about, Andy? Well, let me point out to you, the book of Psalms is a collection of just 150 songs selected from a huge hymn book of ancient Israel and put together a long time after these events. And this collection was selected and published, actually, in the days of the return from exile 
So the nation's been completely disbanded, taken into slavery, and then released again, and, and now they're putting together a, a hymn book. That means it's actually chosen, this song gets chosen by a community of people, or for a community of people, that didn't even have a king. Well, why put royal psalms in when you don't even have a king? I mean, they're existing as a tiny resettlement initiative under the control of the Persian Empire. They've, they've returned to Jerusalem to sweep up the rubble, to pile it all up, to start putting walls back together and, and build a temple again. They're living in rubble. Well, you, you could say, at least here are people who know about living in distress. They know about living with armies all around them, spoiling for a fight, you know, wanting to harm them. Perhaps, you know, this psalm would have been a good incentive to remind them to seek the Lord, to live obedient lives, to be like the king that the Lord saves. But actually, more than that, if this is a song that would make them hold on to a promise. Makes them hold on to the promise that one day God would, once again, give them a king. They would have a king, a king like David, only even better. Now, why do they think that's going to happen? Well, this song is put into the collection because they're supposed to look forward to the coming king that the prophets those bringing the word of God to them, had told them that they would have a king that would end all wars, that would rule over all the nations and usher in a kingdom of peace, more blessed than anything that had come before it. That's the king that this psalm is looking forwards to. A king, imagine, who would always seek the help of heaven, obey God in everything, and devote himself to accomplishing God's plans, not his plans. Or at least his plans and God's plans would mesh together. And most of us here this morning know that just such a king has come. You know, one of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples after his resurrection, before he returned to heaven, was this. It's at the end of Luke's gospel. Jesus says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The whole of the Old Testament part of the Bible, including the book of Psalms, including Psalm 20, is about Jesus. Do you see? Jesus never acted on his own. Even in the greatest of distress, there he is in the garden on his knees, speaking with his father in the agony before, on the, the night before he dies. He always obeyed his father. Faced with the horror of the cross, he prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken unless I drink it, may your will be done. And he didn't just dedicate his life. He gave his life to accomplishing God's plans. They were on the same page. Indeed, he was the kind of king who could say and did say, for even the Son of Man, that is, even I myself, the king, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, it's the author, H.G. Wells, 
who first called World War I, perhaps rather naively, the war to end all wars. Well, it certainly should have ended all wars, but it didn't. Countless wars have been fought since, and wars will continue while sin resides in the heart of man. But in laying down his life, in an even more important and fundamental sense, Jesus did indeed win the war to end all wars. On the cross, Jesus dealt a decisive, fatal blow to the powers of Satan, sin and death. The blood of King Jesus brings forgiveness of sins. He's paid their penalty. His resurrection has taken the sting out of death. It holds no fear anymore. And the power of his new resurrected life sets free those once held under the tyranny of Satan's power. Jesus is indeed the great king foretold by the prophets, looked forward to by the people. And his people are happy and blessed. Sins forgiven, peace with God, everlasting. Future secure. But there is no benefit, is there, of course, to those who are not citizens of his kingdom. That's fairly obvious. I shouldn't even need to say it. I mean, there's no benefit for German citizens, was there, after the Second World War? Those on the losing side suffer all the consequences of defeat. That's what the psalmist is saying here, isn't it? And as we saw earlier, here again then, in this life there are only two sides for us to pick from. We've got to pick one. Either we trust the king, we trust King Jesus, and put ourselves under his rule. What he says goes. I will obey him. Or we reject him. We rebel against that rule and remain outside of that blessed kingdom. Either we, in the words of the psalmist, trust in the name of the Lord our God, Jesus Christ. Or we'll have to trust something else and we'll find ourselves trusting in the chariots and the horses of this world doomed as they are to perish and pass away, never delivering what they promise. All of us are doing one or the other of those two things. So what are you trusting? What are you trusting? Will you, you yourself, trust today in the name of King Jesus? Will you do that? I'm going to give us just a short moment to think about some of the things that have been said this, this morning before we respond. We have remembered the fallen heroes of the world wars this morning. But now we turn to remember that even greater sacrifice. Never before 
has so much been owed by so many to just one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, let's respond to God with this short hymn. Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, he took my sin. By his death, I live again. If you can stand, let's stand to sing this. Please do be seated. And if you can find the, uh, the little cups with the bread and with the juice in them, then please do find those now. If you haven't got them, then uh, I'm sure someone can bring you one if you wave your arms around. Okay. Here in these simple elements here, we have represented to us in this bread and in this cup the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we take part in this remembrance, we contemplate, and in doing so, we lay hold by faith on the truths of our salvation, those truths that we've just spoken about. If that salvation is a reality to you, if indeed you are trusting in the name of the Lord our God and in him alone for salvation, then we welcome you to join us in remembrance this morning. If not, then please do just spend this time in, in silent contemplation. That's fine. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me and in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man or woman ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on themselves. Lord Jesus, in this bread, we are reminded of your once for all sacrifice. You did indeed become 
the ransom for many. You took our place in the judgment. We deserve that judgment for our wicked, sinful hearts. We are ruined and broken and undone before you. We know our guilt. We thank you that you voluntarily took our sin. You bore our sin in your body on the cross. The punishment we deserve fell on you. And so we bow the knee before you in humble thanks. Amen.